Post-pandemic, I'm Courtney Carthy, and this episode, James Ross, CTO at Seek, the huge Australian online jobs board, among other things, also former CTO at Envato, the digital asset marketplace, and appreciator of electric bikes. Each episode, we look at a specific part of society, culture, or the world, and ask a guest to imagine what that might be like after this is all said and done. And there's more information about the guests, the show, and how to get in touch in the episode notes. James Ross, thanks so much for joining us on Post Pandemic. Thanks, Courtney. Lovely to see you, or at least hear you. Was there a moment that it hit you that this was sort of real? There was definitely a moment for me. Um, I I joined at the start of February. Everyone knows seek.com.au. It's the biggest job board in Australia by a long way, but we have a lot of businesses in Asia as well. And I have people in my team in Asia, so I booked to fly up to um, KL and Hong Kong March 15. As this started to build in, in, in our collective consciousness in, in early March, that week before that trip, that was the last week in the office. It was a constant theme that week. There were a bunch of people going with me on that trip, three other people, and every day we were checking in, should we still go, should we still go? Yes, 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 we should still go. We got to the Thursday morning and I woke up to the announcement that the World Health Organization had declared it a global pandemic and that Kuala Lumpur had particularly been of concern. There was a large gathering of people where it had um, where it had emerged that there were some people with COVID-19 or coronavirus. And so that morning, I decided to cancel the trip. And when I said that, everyone else said, yeah, me too, I'm not going. Uh, our whole exec team was traveling the same week and they all canceled. And it was a very strange moment because people were saying, we should be doing something about this as a company. And by that Sunday night, we'd said, okay, mandatory work from home for everyone. Office is closing. So it was that, that last couple of days where I was really hoping to be able to travel, really didn't want to cancel. Um, and then it all just changed. And it's funny because we had a farewell for someone who'd been at Seek for about 15 years on that Friday. Um, and there were that person was hugely popular and hugely impactful. So in our, in our meeting place, you know, the place where you have Friday drinks in the office is this big room called the hub and it's a bar and food and everything. There would have been 300 people jammed in there as a farewell for this lovely person who was leaving. And that the, the difference between, I remember looking at that crowd going, oh, this is really strange. We're, we're all, simultaneously having these conversations about social distancing and people advocating for working from home while other people are gathered doing mass gatherings. So that was definitely the turning point for me that, that Thursday where I cancelled my trip and we suddenly flipped to mandatory working from home. And we haven't heard of a seat cluster. So No, there's, there's <laughs> been absolutely nothing. We and, and we have plans for it, and you know our our HR team are 
are ready with the plans that if anyone gets a positive test, what happens? And we haven't had any touch wood. I need some nearby wood. There's some wood. I'll touch wood. Let's get to the questions and sort of look, I suppose, look forward or, you know, brighter futures, new horizons, that sort of thing. Um, for you uh, as a CTO, what will be different after pandemic passes, which hopefully we're sort of seeing signs of that here in Australia now. What do you think will be different um, for your working life or the culture of your working life, I suppose? I've reflected a little bit. There's a couple of different subcultures in tech and programming culture, and I'm going to completely oversimplify and people listening to this podcast will, will call me out on it. That's okay. But there's, the corporate coding culture is, is you know, traditionally office-based. You, you have whiteboards, you have meetings, you scratch your ideas out on a whiteboard, you, you thrash out what you plan to do and, and you do it. And you typically have people sitting nearby that you can overhear conversations and talk about stuff as you're doing it. And, you know, that is a very effective way to do software development, the co-located team um, that are all there at the same time, working on the same thing, talking about the same thing. And that is a, is a valid model that's worked very well. Then you've got at the other extreme, and, and that's typically people who are being paid to do it, right? Like it's a, in a corporate environment, that, that's your job. Then you've got the open source community, which is not like that at all. Uh, the open source community that builds, you know, things like Linux would be probably the most famous open source project of all that underpins certainly everything that all the technology we're using to do this podcast right now is there'll be a lot of Linux lying underneath it. Um, that's a, you know, globally distributed team of volunteers who might never physically meet. They might actually never be in the same room together. And somehow they manage to build incredible software as well. So you've got these two very different cultures. So what my answer to the question what's going to be different is I think that the corporate culture will have to learn from and move more towards the open source culture. So that involves... Um, you, you have to give up some of the, the benefits of being together and but you get a lot of benefits as well. You get distribution, you get more uh, arguably more considered discussions. They tend to be in written form. People tend to pitch their ideas not on a whiteboard but in the form of a code suggestion. Uh, it tends to be more asynchronous. We talk about synchronous versus asynchronous. This is a synchronous conversation. You and I are here at the same time. Email is asynchronous. I throw you a thought, you throw me a thought some hours later. When I get a chance, I think about it and reply. That It's more asynchronous. So you put your ideas out there. Other people over the next 24 hours consider it, give you their thoughts. So it's arguably slower in the short term but it gets to a great place in the long term and for seek specifically it's been really really interesting because we are a multi-organization you know we're historically a conglomerate we've got these separate businesses in asia mexico brazil australia all over the place um, companies that are independently if you look at each of them they've been largely 
office based. So Seek in the, in in Melbourne, the head office is in on St Kilda Road, and there's a thousand person building. And most days there would have been, you know, nine hundred people with some people on leave or whatever. But a, an office based culture, and our Kuala Lumpur office company would have had an office based culture as would our Hong Kong one. So you're talking about multiple businesses that the multiple businesses that have predominantly an office-based culture, and then you tell them all to work from home. What has happened, which is really interesting, is that the people in Australia are probably feeling a bit less connected to each other, and the people in KL are probably feeling a bit less connected to each other. But the people in Asia are feeling a lot more connected to the people in Australia, um, which I didn't foresee. but it, it does make sense because everyone's on Zoom now and it's a level playing field. So you're not talking about having a bunch of people in the Melbourne office in a room with some people from our Asian office on Zoom having a slightly different experience. Everyone's having the same experience of Zoom. So that's been an interesting um, bit of feedback we've had and in, in my role in particular, I'm very much trying to build a team that is um, across the region, building our software with a single team from all those locations, delivering to customers in all those locations. So that is a, you know, I think is a huge positive just for me in this circumstance, even though it's at the cost of, um, you know, the Australian team's connections being dialed down a bit. Just going back to the the open source software you mentioned wasn't i think microsoft and other larger tech companies had been Mm. starting to adopt much more of the open source culture but also some of the more open source products i think envato was quite a big user of a lot of open source most corporates are huge users of open source software like that is (laughs) they'll take the freebie like like oh absolutely like I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a company that wouldn't have a huge reliance on open source software. I don't know of any, but that's different to having the open source culture. But open source as a, we all rely on Linux, we all rely on, you know, the databases that power all our websites are typically MySQL and Postgres, which are both open source. You know, in the old days, your choices were Oracle and, you know, the proprietary, very expensive ones, but, you know, over the years, the open source tools have become really, really good, and we all use them, even if we're corporate in our in our own culture. Well, with open source adoption possibly increasing, what do you think um, will head in the other direction and become obsolete? Ah, yeah, that's interesting. I think other people have said, you know, we've all been listening to podcasts where the the pandemic and its effect is is discussed and. I'm of the view that a lot of trends will be accelerated that were already in play. Uh, obviously, work from home. Uh, I'm not predicting a, an increase in the trend of homeschooling. I think we've all tried that and found that not, you know, not something we're going to leap into in the future. For tech, the the old school model for security, and again, I'm going to oversimplify, is that the corporate the corporate offices were conceptually thought of as a fortress with a moat. To get into a corporate office building, you know, there's 
turnstiles with security and keypads and they keep you out of the fortress. And once you're inside the fortress, if you make it into the fortress and the drawbridge comes up, then you have access to what's inside the fortress, if that makes sense. I think that idea is obsolete because of this forced experiment of people having to work from home and work in a more distributed manner. So if you're a bank and your previous security design has been the fortress and moat model, and now none of your people are actually in the fortress, they're all out distributed, you've got to deal with the fact that each of those people is sitting at home with an internet connection you don't understand, with a um, with physical circumstances you don't understand and can't control. So they might be sitting in a cafe with a, using an open Wi-Fi network with, you know, people reading over their shoulder sensitive documents. You know what I mean? Like you, you have to accept that your people are far less, their environment that they're in is far less controlled. So you've, you've, you've just got to use a different approach where basically each individual has to become a little fortress that you trust to be out there in the wild world. And the, and the internet is wild. It, it's not a very secure place. So there's a lot more of a trend towards much stronger security on each device that the person's carrying and much less on the fortress mentality and that trend was very much in play and i think this is massively going to accelerate it because a lot of companies that weren't as far down that journey have had to rush to make it work with their with this experiment so what does that mean like um i'm using my work computer here now i effectively use it just like i would use my um my personal laptop um i'm not at home i'm on sort of Wi-Fi connection here for the studio. How does the, how does the mini fortress, how do I, how do I, or how do you build a mini fortress for me? Oh, well, there's a lot of people who will sell you products to do that. Um, <laughs> I bet you get the phone calls. <laughs> uh, most modern operating systems, Mac and Windows come with things like firewalls built in, right? So if I go back a long way, the, the concept of a firewall was at the corporate office layer. And now we all have firewalls on our own computers. I'll give you another example. Companies like Seek and any other company that handles sensitive information is very concerned about controlling it. You might have traditionally had systems that detected sensitive data leaving your building. Does that make sense? And, and anyone in the building who was mishandling sensitive data and sending it out of the building could have been stopped by there being a check at the boundary. Now you have to have those checks on the machine, on, on every machine. You know, this is not normal yet. This is just where it's heading. And the, these are some of the systems that we have in place and other people who are already going down this road have in place. The architecture of security has to change because people who you have to trust with important responsibilities operating in an unsafe environment that you can't control as a corporate person are you going to start vetting other properties of the the person to to make sure that you know there's no i suppose leakage 
Oh, well, um, there's already, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I had a police background check done before I got the job I currently have. I think there's all that sort of stuff happens. Um, all that stuff happens already, but, you know, that's, that, that, that's, that's for when you interview a HR person, not a tech person. Um, you know, as you're thinking about the distributed systems and, you know, people in China being just as connected as people in Melbourne to people in Melbourne, how is your sort of daily working life going to be changed or has changed already as a senior executive at a you know, large tech company based in Melbourne? I, I had been planning this year to do a lot of travel to Asia to build relationships with the, the folks in the businesses we have up there. And I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to do that at all. So um, it, it's, it's forced us to build relationships in a, in, in a way we wouldn't have chosen to do. It's working quite well. Everyone is, is adapted really well. What sort of ritual or cultural practice is there when you're building a senior business technology relationship with somebody uh, in a similar role but in a different culture? Have you had to does Zoom undermine that? Yeah, it's fascinating. I think, look, I don't claim any expertise. I, I just claim to be trying a lot of random stuff, and as I think we all are. I think the thing that is good about this is that everyone's been affected and everyone is, it's different for everyone, and, and that's giving everyone a lot of empathy. I'm finding people very willing to be accommodating, understanding, I've stopped apologising for not being able to come up to Asia in person. They all understand. So I'm not feeling any um, guilt about that because everyone understands it. I, I, I was feeling a lot of guilt initially and apologising a lot. And the thing we've lost, what we're realising is that when the interactions you have with people are scheduled interactions only, so, you know, you have Zooms, you know, five or six Zoom meetings a day, and they're the pre-planned, pre-booked ones. When you're all in the office, when you're walking between those meetings, you're having ad hoc interactions with people. And you're in this world, we're still having the scheduled interactions with people. We're not having the ad hoc interactions with people. So I, I think that's, uh, I haven't done it consciously, but I think that's leading me to, you know, have more few minutes of icebreaker time at the start of all, all the meetings before getting down to business because it's it, the risk is that it just becomes purely transactional and you lose all the human element. And I'm not at all claiming that that would mitigate the effect. I think we need to do a lot more. We're going to have to think about a lot more ways to inject some randomness into it. Otherwise, it will become too transactional. I don't know where we would have been going through this 10 years ago. Tech has come such a long way in the last decade where so much of this was normal before this hit, right? Slack had penetrated the culture for a long time and it's well-established. Um, video conferencing was well-established. 10 years ago, many fewer companies would have been able to cope as well. I don't think the tech industry gets enough credit for that. You know, tech has stood up really well and enabled this, you know, enabled us to cope as well as we have. 
I uh, was doing a little bit of well, reading up on Flat Earth, you know, to do possibly a show about the people that believe in, in that theory. Um, That'll be fun. Uh, it's, it got a little bit – I got a little bit too deep. I can tell you a bit about Flat Earth Theory because <laughs> um, it, it was an outlet for stress to, to engage with these people and have these discussions. But one argument that I tried on them which really fell flat, but I think it stacks up, is that – No pun intended? Fell flat? <laughs> They would think that's a good thing, but uh, mm. but but not me. Tech like GPS, you know, all this stuff that's so integral that we, you know, that works well enough for us to take for granted wouldn't be possible on a flat Earth. Uh, right. And that if they seriously believed that the Earth was flat, they should basically ditch their mobile phones. Yes, didn't work. No, no, absolutely not. They just didn't care because they're you know, personal sentiments are so malleable to suit whatever they believe in at the time that they just move on. But to your point, things have stacked up. You know, there's I think there's been worse outages in the of the internet in the last twenty four months than there has been in the last three. Um, I think Amazon or AWS Definitely. went down for a bit and a quarter of the internet was sort of slower mm. or a bit out of it. And a lot of these companies have had, you know, we take them for granted, the Amazons, the Zooms, the Slacks, but as companies, they've had to do a lot of adjustments, same as the rest of us, and get all their people to work from home. So it's not like they didn't have disruption, but, but their services haven't been disrupted. Nice lead into the next question. The positive um, coming from, from the pandemic or COVID-19 is that maybe we have a more robust global technology stack? Well, um, you know, without wanting to discount the horrible effect this has had on so many people and and industries, um, you know, I saw the photos of the Venice canals that were clear for the first time and and photos of, you know, the reduced pollution in cities and you're confronted with the reality that, that there are some upsides to... Um, to this. I think we're seeing, you know, as a father of a 16-year-old daughter who quite likes going to Chadston and blowing money on things that seem like a complete waste of time to me, this has reduced conspicuous consumption, I think, um, which is bad for the people who rely on selling those things. But as a general rule, I'm given to understand that, you know, electric bike sales are up and they're all sold out. That's good. I'm, I'm led to believe musical instrument sales are up. That's good. Some people are taking pleasure in the, some of the simpler things of life, which I think is good. There's a lot more people baking, a lot more sourdough at home. <laughs> Too uh, many. Yeah, right? So, and, and they're all putting the photos on Instagram and uh, you know, crazy things like jigsaw puzzles are sold out, right? So if if carbon emissions are down, I'm led to believe emergency room presentations are down. I'm sure I read that somewhere. You know, there is less ambient, you know, less traffic means fewer accidents, less mass gatherings of young people who've drunk too much, you know, leading to fewer hospital admissions. But I would probably point to a, a renewed interest in taking pleasure in the simpler things in life being one of the best ones and carbon emissions way down on where they would be 
is pretty good as well. There's been a lot of um, natural experiments. I was listening to a podcast that said two people whose scientific research has been greatly assisted by this pandemic. One was uh, a woman who studied whales. And apparently the best place to study whales is in this bay where they breed in Alaska, I think it was. And the usual problem is that that bay is full of cruise ships because the cruise ship people want to go and see the whales as well. And now there's no cruise ships. This is the first time since, you know, they dropped these complex microphones into the water to listen to the whales communicating. And this is the first time they've had the opportunity to do that when the technologies existed to do it and the boats haven't been there to distract and disrupt the behavior of the whales. So that was interesting. And the other one was someone who studies boredom. They spent their whole career studying boredom and they've got this massive natural global experiment and, and they're gathering more data about how people respond to boredom than they could ever have imagined in their life. So that's one person who's been, will take great scientific leaps forward in the study of boredom as a result of this pandemic. Have, have you found yourself idle? I'm not the sort of person who gets bored. I, I have found I've had to get a much stricter routine going to sort of stay sane and to, you know, it's one of the things working from home is drawing the boundary and particularly when there's an infinite backlog of emails and obligations and meetings and things people need, you, you can easily just work 24-7 and burn out. I've, I've set up a routine where it's exercise every day in the morning. I either run or cycle. And then my, my hobbies are in music. So in the, in the evening, it'll be playing guitar or learning a new song. Or I'm in a band and all our gigs got cancelled, but it's an opportunity to learn new stuff so that we can come back with some new material. Uh, you know, I try to consciously, uh, you know, I do try to make sure that keep that balance um so i've always had those hobbies and and they've re- they've really benefited like I'm, I'm running more cycling more playing guitar more and i'm and i really like that possibly at a gig in you know 15 20 years time when you're approached by a young person who's enjoyed your uh your band and they say oh mr ross i heard you were you know, practicing guitar during the global <laughs> pandemic. What what was it like? What, How, was what, it like? What, do, what do you think you'll say to them over the sort of background DJ and clinking of glasses in a packed <laughs> nightclub that you've been booked to play? Uh, well, I should probably just, you know, challenge the premise of your question that young people would come to any gig I do. Like, they don't, they don't, they don't. But they don't. They don't come now. We play seventies and eighties music, and it's and it's it's all people in my demographic. But on the assumption that a young person did come, it feels like the biggest uh, social experiment the world's ever done. Um, I, I don't know if that's actually true, but it but it it feels like it, and it feels like something the whole world is going through together and trying to work out together, and that's semi-chaotic and but you know there is definitely a sense of togetherness about it um that is quite remarkable so um i would probably describe it as the biggest 
psychological experiment the world's ever seen. And I imagine in 15 or 20 years, we'll still be trying to work out the effect of it. You know, I think we're still trying to work out all the effects of the industrial revolution, right? I I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're going to know in 15 or 20 years, all the effects of, of this, but we'll certainly have, um, you know, come to quite a few conclusions, I imagine. Well, I suppose in your exploration of some sort of conclusion to the, you know, first, I suppose the end of 2019 and the first, what will at least be the first six months of 2020, perhaps you put together a book or a film or a TV series about what's happened or, you know, to a similar theme. What what would it be about and, and what would you call it? Yeah, the, this has felt to me like a psychological tsunami. I can remember, I'm, I'm a very uh, active podcast listener, and, and during February I can recall listening to podcasts where they were sounding the alarm pretty seriously. And, you know, there were people at work who were doing the hand sanitizer thing in every meeting in February. And, and I can recall going, Gee, that's a bit that's a bit weird. And and so there were people ahead of me on the psychological wave. And then the wave sort of crashed over me in mid-March, along with a lot of other people. And then I can recall spending the next few weeks trying to convince with my wife, trying to convince her mother to self-isolate and and she was poo-pooing the whole thing and saying, oh, you're all overreacting. And, and, and so we all had people who were ahead of us on the wave and behind us on the wave. And that was that, that's, to me, the thing that I found very fascinating to go through. And I think we probably all went through that. So that, that sense of it being a wave that went around like a Mexican wave or a tsunami. So a psychological tsunami or a I could portmanteau that and make it a tsunami, something like that, if I was going to pitch a movie about it. I think that, that's fantastic. There's no, there's no parallel you could really, like, you know, like a, a, a madness sweeping through, but it's always so localised when that, you know, happens. Yeah. It's a, this is like a Mexican wave at the global scale. And it's still going. The ripples are still very much in effect. What do you think, and this is the final question, question seven, what do you think we should be paying attention to? And notice you've got a couple of suggestions here, so after the first we'll get to the second. If you zoom out and look at Australia, I'm a a tech person, but if you zoom out and look at Australia's economy, the tech isn't at the top of our exporting earning industries, right? It's iron ore, coal, natural gas, and the the first, you know, the first non-commodity thing that Australia does is is education. So education and tourism, as my understanding, is the, the, the next biggest export-earning industries after the, the commodity ones. And we have done very little to protect the education industry to be able to continue to play that role after this. And I think same for tourism. So... Those industries employ a lot of people, earn huge export dollars for us, and you know we're not supporting international students. There's a, there's a bunch of non-government activity to try and support them, but I worry about, and I think we should be worried about, 
international students who are trapped here, uh, struggling to survive because, you know, they might have all been earning part-time money working at cafes or driving Uber and that's all gone. We're not providing them any government support. What are they going to tell all their friends when they eventually get home about what a good idea it is to go to Australia to study? I worry about those people going home and, and because of the experience we've given them, telling all their friends not to come. And that's not a good thing. We should be very concerned about the long-term effects of that. There was an article from the vice chancellors, I think, that said this has really punched a hole in, in you know, first-year students in particular this year, and next year that'll be a hole in second-year student numbers, and the year after that that'll be a hole in third-year student numbers. So you're talking about tens of billions of dollars of impact over many years on the education industry, and I don't think people understand how big an industry that is. I think it's Victoria's largest export industry. It might be Australia's third or fourth, I think. So that's one thing I think we should worry about. Um, you know, the other one, I think, you know, people, risk management as, as, a, as a thing is just not good enough. We keep being surprised when big bad things happen um and you know we need to we need to get better at realizing that while we can't predict the particular next bad thing that will happen i think that's the false you know and i'm not a professional risk manager right but the next big bad thing that happens to the world might not be a pandemic right so you don't want to over-index on preventing pandemics. We should try and prevent all the pandemics and do everything we can to stop them. But it's, it would be wrong to assume that the only thing we now have to worry about is pandemics. Something big and bad will happen in the next 10 years, and we won't predict that either. But what you can do is know that something will happen and not be surprised. So... You know, we've had the dot-com blow-up, we've had the GFC, now we've had this. And, you know, Australia's had nearly 30 years of economic growth. And as a country, we even though we've had all that growth, we haven't saved for the rainy day so that when it starts raining, we can cope, right? And I think all of us individually need to get a bit better at that and be a bit less surprised when the next crisis comes for each of us individually and as a, as a country and, and as a world, I think. I, I can recommend, uh, if you're going to talk about Taleb, Nicholas Taleb, who is someone who is, you shouldn't listen to me, you should just go and read The Black Swan, Fooled by Randomness, Anti-Fragile. Nassim Taleb is someone who rants much more eloquently and from a much more valid base of experience than me on, on this topic. And, you know, I read a lot of Taleb after the GFC. It's, it's very confronting and he's very, very direct. A lot of people don't like his style because he does just poke you in the forehead with his, <laughs> with his very well-considered opinions on what you're doing wrong. So it can feel a bit confronting his, his writing style, but if you can tolerate the 
that that sense of discomfort and there's an awful lot there of value and you can get his book his book oh, well, i suppose if you've got a kindle it's never going to sell out but it was ex- being mentioned on a lot of things that i was listening to just a couple of months ago there'll be a link in the show notes to uh to his book uh nasim nicholas taleb t-a-l-e-b james what are you going to do for the rest of the day Oh, we have, we are currently, this is the final day of our three day hackathon that for the first time ever is fully remote involving all, all our folks in Asia and Australia. So this is the, this afternoon I'm, I'm a judge for our first ever APAC hackathon. So that's super exciting. There's about 20 teams doing cool and crazy stuff and you've got to, got to be on the judging panel. So that'll be great. Do the Australian hackers stand up or the Australian coders or um, software engineers stack up internationally? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Good, good. Just checking, just checking. Absolutely. Absolutely. World class. Un- unquestionably world class. James Ross, CTO at seek.com.au, but also further afield across Asia Pacific as well. Uh, Always more information in the episode notes, so do find it there. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review or tell a friend. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Post Pandemic. Post Pandemic is hosted by me, Courtney Carthy. Production is by Neely Media. Cover artwork by Studio Baker. And our theme music was created by Alex Shulgan.